Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we're continuing our journey through the Gospels. In the last episode, we left off where Mary had just given birth to Jesus, and we took a lot of time discussing the intricacies of the Nativity story, including things like why Joseph actually went to Bethlehem and the nature of his and Mary's betrothal. Uh, to give some better context to our listeners, and now we're picking up right where we left off. So anything you need to add before we jump in? Nope. I think it's straight to the text. All right. Where where are we in the text? Okay. We left off. Uh, we had just finished Luke chapter 2, verse 7, so we're about to begin at verse 8, and here we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Just a quick note on this, this might kind of reinforce the idea of Jesus being born sometime during the fall months, uh, and only because, in in at least the normal case, the time that they would be uh, having the sheep out in the fields would be between, say, April and November. November would probably be the latest. And so, if they're out there, the theory is it was a little bit before then. Um, Now, Here's another thing that's actually also kind of interesting. Given the location that they're talking about, we might even at least speculate that these shepherds were Levites. There were Levitical shepherds that actually watched over flocks to be used in sacrifices, etc. And this location was a known area for them. We, We don't know exactly pinpoint where this is, but it's a very real possibility they were Levites. So them witnessing the story and telling the story is going to be very important. That's awesome. It, there's, well, I'm sure we'll get into it more later, but there's a lot of shadows of uh, temple, the temple system and how Messiah fits into that in a spiritual sense with those Levites uh, caring for a very specific sheep and how Jesus is described as, you know, the atoning sacrifice in a spiritual oh, yeah. sense. Yeah, and people, they're going to hear it more as we go. The temple is going to be an integral part of the story all the way through to the end of the world kind of a thing. So stick with us, you'll hear more about that. So we get to verse 9, and he says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, We talked about this last episode, and I don't even know how many times before. Once again, an angel shows up, and people are what? They're scared of their wits. Yeah, they're afraid. They're not the chubby, winged baby cherubs. They are fearsome creatures, if I don't know what else to call them. But, and this is important, I think this sometimes gets lost in translation too. It wasn't just an angel. The glory of the Lord surrounded them. Now, does that remind you of anything, Samuel? Sounds like the inside of the Holy of Holies in the temple with the... Exactly! Yeah! The glory of the Lord is all around these guys. And so, one other thing, if we could make a connection in Luke itself, this could take us back to the Magnificat. Remember when we were talking about Mary's song or poem, whatever we called it? One of the things in there was she spoke of God exalting the humble. And here you have shepherds. I mean, even if they're Levitical shepherds, they're not, you know, the upper crust of society or anything. They're usually the lower class. And they are the ones that God sends an angel to. The glory of the Lord is all around them, out in the middle of a field. That's super cool. And yeah, if, and if our listeners are still struggling with that concept of glory, remember back from our first episode on that uh, practice that you can use interposing different words. We had talked about glory also being represented as presence. So you could look at that verse and you could say, and the presence of the Lord shone around them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That really brings it home. 
Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Uh, okay, so verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not. We've heard that before. That's right. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Again. Uh, do you remember how going through these first couple chapters of Luke, I keep telling you that uh, scholars have basically identified seven oracles? Mm-hmm. Yes. And we've tried to be counting them off? Mm-hmm. Well, for the life of me, I can't figure out why this is not one. I don't know if it's because they didn't want eight, and so they chose to skip this one, or there's some sort of... Uh, criteria that I've missed in my reading about it or whatever, <laughs> but this is not one of them. But nonetheless, well, if I could just say, is this not also possibly the most famous one, thanks to Linus? I mean, if you ever watched Peanuts, uh, Peanuts Christmas, what, that, that kind of thing, this is, the, this is the classic part of their little play, Linus is doing it. And yet, it's not one of the seven oracles. I feel like an idiot. Um, whenever I heard you say Linus, I was first thinking of like a, some first century historian. Oh. <laughs> and then I just realized, oh, you're talking about the Charlie Brown character. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Brown made it famous. And, and it's not one of the big seven. So, I don't know what's about, up with that. But uh, a couple things to point out in here. It says, I, I bring you good news. Well, that word... Uh, underneath good news, well, that's gospel. The same way, um, you know, uh, John the Baptist is going to talk about the gospel. Jesus is going to talk about the gospel. Everybody's talking about the gospel. This is that same word. And it's, of course, great joy for all the people. But as we continue, I think we're going to be able to more specifically define what the gospel is. But at least know, hey, talking about Jesus' birth, this is obviously an important part of the gospel in the general sense. Yeah, I can't wait to start teaching about what the gospel, the gospel actually is. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a shock for some people. It will. It will. Yeah. They'll think, well, let's see, there are two of us. So how many heads would they think we have? They'll think we have four <laughs> heads. Yeah. Um, okay. So also, how about this one? Uh, it's going to be great joy. And it will be for all the people. When you hear that phrase, all the people, what do you think, Samuel? Sounds like all the nations, not just Israel. That's right. And that's the important part of it. It's not just, you know, generally every person who lives on earth. In context, we need to recognize for all the people means not just Israel, but all nations, the Gentiles. So this is the very beginning of what we're going to discover is a consistent message in the New Testament of Gentile inclusion. What else does we ha- do we have in here that's good? Oh, uh, says he's a savior, right? The Jews, okay, they expected a savior. And, and, and just to, I don't know, try to bring it down a little bit, the savior is, is someone who brings salvation, one who brings deliverance, and In Israel's history, there have been saviors along the way. They're obviously smaller in scope. Uh, They're not, you know, the cleanse everyone conscious from sin and everybody gets eternity with God and that kind of thing. But this idea of a savior isn't only applied to the final ultimate one, Messiah. There have been saviors along the way. Uh, let's see, how did he say it? In the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord? And so this is the angel's way of specifying this just isn't any old ordinary Savior. This is the actual Christ, which is just the English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Messiah, mm-hmm. Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, uh, one other thing, it says that there's a sign. This will be a sign for you. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm being silly, but it seems kind of anticlimactic. 
When you think that there's going to be a sign from God, there's an angel talking to you and you're surrounded by the the glory of the Lord and the sign is you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, out of all of those, I mean, there's nothing weird about a baby, nothing weird about being wrapped up in cloths. Okay, lying in a manger. Well, that one might be a little bit odd. But even that doesn't feel overly sign-like. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, and you bring up a really good point, and I wonder if that touches into you know, the whole discrepancy of Jewish tradition when they were trying to think about the Messiah, and um, the rabbis said there were going to be two Messiahs. There was going to be a Messiah, son of Joseph, and he was going to be a suffering servant for his people yeah. uh, to sacrifice himself. And then there's going to be a Messiah, son of David, who is a conquering king, who's going to bring justice and peace over the whole earth. And so I wonder if this is like the kind of the first um, not meeting expectations of what the Jews thought Messiah was going to be. Like what you said, it's anticlimactic because they expected they expected Messiah, son of David, and what they got was Messiah, son of Joseph, you know, and Messiah right. coming as a baby in a humble estate. That's probably like, oh, that's not what we expected. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, I, I think you're right. We're going to see through all of the New Testament this uh, Messiah who doesn't quite seem like the Messiah that they were expecting, hoping for. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a really good point. I think that could very well be part of the story here. Yeah. Okay. Verse 13. Let's go on. So remember, you've got an angel and then you're surrounded by the glory. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, That's ESV, just so you all know, and I know some people were kind of expecting a different wording there, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but let's take it in order. Uh, As if this scene wasn't already cool enough, crazy enough, right? Suddenly, you have what is called a great number of heavenly hosts, and they just appear out of nowhere. Now, when you hear the phrase heavenly host, what do you think of, Samuel? A whole bunch of angels. Yeah, and I I don't know about you, but the image that we've been given through, uh, whether it's people, people in churches, movies, television, whatever, it's like a giant heavenly choir. You almost expect them to be wearing choir robes. You know what I'm saying? It's all serene. It's like a Hallmark card or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? This is an army. These aren't, you know, a choir. This is an army army, the heavenly army that's suddenly surrounding them. And think about what they're saying. You've got all of these spiritual warrior beings ready for war, and they're praising God. Why? For bringing peace. Hmm? What? Warriors praising God for bringing peace between heaven and earth, between God and man, right? All of it. Now, back to that phrase, I know that what most people want to hear, and this, I think, also comes from Charlie Brown, uh, what we're used to hearing is peace on earth, goodwill to men. But I got to tell you, that really is a bad translation. And we're going to try to avoid picking on the translations, generally speaking, but this one It just really isn't helping you see what's being said. It's really, I mean, if you want to stick with the same kind of words, it would be more like peace on earth to men of goodwill. And the reason this is important is because this peace isn't for every single person who lives. This peace is for men of goodwill. Or, as the ESV has it, those with whom he is pleased. This goodwill is a person whose will is, at least generally speaking, in sync with God's. And this is an important picture. 
many people read verses like this and they think, oh, this is so great. God has now, you know, opened the door for all of mankind. And there is a sense in which that is true, but for any part of mankind to actually get access to this thing requires something on their part. They have to be um, men of goodwill. They have to be someone with whom God is pleased. And that all comes back to thoughts and actions and behavior, which we'll address more and more and more as we go. And that touches on kind of Okidokimos' mission statement with the Second Timothy verse with being um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Exactly. It's just like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about it in our intro, but if you keep listening to us, you're going to feel that sense of responsibility that you have in this relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And it can't be avoided. You can't gloss over it like it's not a part. Okay. Verse 15. Now, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And again, that kind of goes back and says, you know, the seeming important part of the sign was that the baby was lying in a manger. That was the odd part, right? So the shepherds believe what they've been told. They hurry to go see it. They find everything exactly as they were told it would be. In verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Well, who'd they make it known to, Samuel? Uh, Is it everyone? Well, at this point, it's the people wherever Mary and Joseph are. Okay. It could have just been Mary and Joseph. Mm -hmm. Or if there were others gathered around, it could have been others. But it's, it's very, very localized at this point. And all who heard it, I'm sorry, verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This seems to be a pattern with Mary, doesn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And the shepherds returned, verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So, the shepherds, you know, again, they, they relate that story. This, this is what happened to us out in the field. And if it were true that they were Levites, they're going to not just tell Mary and Joseph, hey, this is what happened to us out in the field, and we came here, and look, it's true. They're going to tell everybody that they find, right? They want everybody to know this. And because they're Levites, they should have a pretty good audience for this. They should be able to just talk to everyone among the Levites and get that story spread. But in the end, whether we're talking about those just where Mary and Joseph are, or, or if we've somehow expanded and we're talking about everybody outside, everybody's amazed. And it, it, this idea of uh, maybe being lifted up, that the thing, the story that they're telling is bringing hope among the people, if that makes sense, Right. Uh, and then Mary treasures these things. She's, she's uh, protecting them, defending them, hiding them. They're all in her heart. And then when the shepherds get back, uh, they're not praising the message or the manner in which the message uh, was fulfilled, per se. What they're actually doing is glorifying and praising God himself. And this also is a, it's a great image because they understand, they properly understand the source. I mean, the, the, the fact that everything was as the angel had told them, that was super awesome. Even being visited by angels in the glory, that was super awesome. Everything was awesome. Seeing this baby, uh, understanding his role, that's all awesome. But in the end, they don't glorify that. They don't praise any of that. They praise God because they, they understand the true source. Mm-hmm. So it's a cool picture. It is cool. And if anyone, whenever Paul had said, you know, that the shepherds were telling everyone who would listen and, you know, wouldn't you if you were in that situation, that kind of is ringing some bells of what evangelism looks like. But I would say that it's the 
what they are doing is different than what Western evangelism looks like. I would say that the shepherds are relaying their um, experience of interacting with God. That's It's a Hebrew concept called Yadah. It's being able to experience and know him and encounter him in an intimate right. way. And so, I, you know, if, if you experience the creator of the world, of course, out of just straight excitedness, are you going to share that with people? That comes across as much different as, and I'm not saying there's not power and goodness to having, you know, the ABCs of salvation and being able to draw the bridge illustration to share the gospel with someone, but one of those two seems much more organic to me uh, than the other. And then if you're at the end of what you said, they're praising God, the source, um, you know, it's kind of like a, see see what I'm doing, like mimic what I'm doing rather than, you know, agree with what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to say that. And uh, as you were speaking, I had two words running through my head. You mentioned evangelism, and I was going to set that uh, in contrast to testimony. Mm-hmm. Because evangelism, I, I mean... It depends on who's doing it and how they're doing it, whatever. But it can come across as, hey, agree with what I'm saying. Testimony is simply, look, this happened, This I'm going to share my story, and that alone ought to be the thing that gets your attention. And you don't have to agree with what I'm saying. You just have to, I don't know, accept I'm not a liar or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's yeah, it's good example, Samuel, good mm-hmm. example. Okay, now, I love this part. Let's get into it. I don't know if it'll be as exciting for everybody else, but this is, this is important that we see. We're, we're now going to get some insight into uh, the Jewish nature of Jesus' life, and it's important that we have that picture in our heads. So verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Ah, before he was conceived. Mm. That ought to take you back to that story and see how that one works out, Mm -hmm. right? Let's see. Verse 22, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And... So, to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Wow, there's so much in here. But let's start. So, number one, you know that we've got Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day. What does that remind you of, Samuel? Oh, shoot. Didn't John the Baptist get circumcised on the eighth day? Exactly, exactly. He was circumcised on the eighth day, and what else did they do on the eighth day? Oh, they gave them gave the baby their name? Right, yeah, and that's exactly what's happening here. The end of eight days, he's circumcised and given his name, right? It's awesome. And, yeah. and remember, we even talked about that, that, what was it, the throne of Elijah, where mm-hmm. they would do the circumcision. Again, we don't know if that was actually in place in this time period, but, you know, it... it, it it's a neat picture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, according to Jewish law, it's going to be a lot of detail, but it's good to know it. Mary had to be purified 40 days after giving birth. Or, I mean, it didn't have to be exactly on day 40. It was 40 days or more, okay? And Jesus had to be redeemed. And and that's probably an odd word for us because we don't know or do anything like it, it goes way, way back, way back in the Old Testament. All firstborn humans or animals belonged to God. And this goes back to, I know we talked about it recently, the Exodus story, right? The the 10th plague, saving the firstborns from death. All that. So all of the firstborn, whether human or animals, they belong to God. And we have to go to, um, that. well, you can see this, uh, we're not going to bother reading them, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, 
Exodus chapter 13, verses 2 and 12. And of course, you can read all around this. I'm just trying to get to the the heart of the issue. Numbers chapter 3, verse 13. And so you you can get a picture of how all of the firstborn had to be redeemed. Uh, And Mary, now she was supposed to bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon for a purification offering. But scripture offers an alternative for the poor. So she, she could, instead of the lamb and the turtle dove, she could bring just two turtle doves or, or even two pigeons. And you can see the details about that in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. But what Luke is doing here is making sure that we see that Mary, Joseph, and I mean, not that Jesus is doing it himself, he's an eight-day-old baby, but they are following the law to the letter. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And then Joseph, in the midst of all this, he had a choice. Since Jesus was Mary's first child, okay, it's uh, the one who opened the womb, uh, it belonged to God. So he could actually take Jesus to the temple and give him to the priests to be raised by the priests. And he would do that because he had no money. Or he could redeem him for five silver shekels. And, and just so you can read about that background, you could go to Numbers chapter 3, verses 47 and 48, or Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. But think about the image that you have here. What was the sacrifice that Mary brought? It was for purification. Yeah, but it was only the pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. She brought the sacrifice of the poor. And here's Joseph. His choice is to give up the child to the priesthood to be cared for or to redeem him. But that was going to cost him five silver shekels. So they're bringing the the sacrifice of the poor for Mary and at the same time, they're bringing the five silver shekels to redeem the child so that they can keep him and raise him themselves. And so you see this, this level of sacrifice that Joseph and Mary are making on behalf of the child, which is an awesome picture, given mm-hmm. what the child is going to do for all of us, right? Yeah. Now, it may, it may seem harsh, this whole idea of, well, wow, man, you're, you're telling me that Poor people didn't get to keep their babies or something? I mean, what, what, that's horrible. And it does seem weird to us in 2020, you know, America, whatever. But this is actually another way that we see that God is ensuring that the poor will be cared for. If you are truly unable to even care for your child, You don't have to worry that your child is going to starve or that they're going to, well, whatever. You have the option of turning them over to be cared for properly, which it's just another amazing picture of God's mercy and his concern for the downcast. Mm -hmm. And then I I would also add that um, the way that Jewish families treated their firstborn son and how they saw them is much different than our Western modern culture today. I, th- I think yeah. a good example of that, if you go back in first uh, Samuel and you look at the story of Hannah giving yeah. birth to Samuel, like, I mean, she treated that son like it was a miracle and it was, but you know, her heart was inclined to say, if you give me this blessing of being able to, you know, go through this experience of giving birth to this child, like this, this child will be, dedicated to serve you and i may be making an assumption but i would say that more families in jewish culture than we think had that kind of heart based on the traditions and the stories they grew up with that they were more inclined to see their son go into the service of god than like selfishly holding on to them 
Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And of course, what is the end of Hannah's story with Samuel? Um, After he is weaned, she, well, she actually... Get, yeah, gives him to the priests. Right, yeah. She gives him over. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing picture. I love it. Now, now, remember the picture. What they have done, they were in Bethlehem. Thankfully, this is really close to Jerusalem. And so they're going to go to the temple to do uh, their, to keep the law, if we could say it that way, okay? So you get to verse 25, and it says, Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous. Man, there it is again. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So Simeon, here's yet another person being called righteous, and, and, I mean, again, you got to go back. What about statements from Paul, which is, uh, he's referring back to something in the Old Testament. What, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, what do you do with that? When you've got that in one portion of your Bible and another portion of your Bible where people are being called righteous. Well, you have to step back and understand that your Bible is not one giant literal book. Your Bible is filled with all kinds of literary goodness. And one part of that, whether you like it or not, is hyperbole. Mm -hmm. There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, you can't take that literally. You just can't. And so, uh, Simeon, he's another righteous person. He's also called devout. Uh, But interestingly, Luke only calls him A man. There was a man in Jerusalem. And the reason that's interesting is because many scholars, uh, over the course of time, the more they they get into this, they're starting to believe pretty consistently that he is, in fact, a priest. And and part of this is because we're in the midst of telling this story of Jesus' consecration, and you're going to see a couple verses later that there's more. We'll talk about that when we get there. And now, we don't know because the text doesn't say it, but it's, it's starting to become pretty compelling. And, and Luke says that this man, or possibly this priest, Simeon, says that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that consolation of Israel is kind of a, almost a poetic way of saying he's waiting for that long-promised Messiah. Specifically, he's, he's, he's waiting for the comforting of Israel that's, that's described back in Isaiah chapters, well, I mean, it's almost like the, the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. God is expected to comfort his people, Israel, by delivering them from the bondage of this world, the, the, the enemies, uh, all of it. He's, he's going to deliver his people. And so, we get to verse 26. This same guy, Simeon, he's, he's a, for sure a man. We got that part down. Maybe a priest. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And again, that word Christ is the same as Messiah. It's, it's not two different things. It's just different words of the same thing. So Simeon had, at some point, maybe when he was young, maybe the day before they showed up. Well, we don't know. Somehow, sometime he had been informed by God that he would actually see the promised Messiah before he died. But today was the day. That sounds kind of reminiscent to Zechariah's story about today's the day he gets to go into the temple and make that sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So verse 27, he came, uh, this would be Simeon, he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. 
So remember, they're talking about maybe Simeon is a priest? Well, here they are bringing in their child. They're trying to do the thing according to the law. They're redeeming him, right? And and apparently, they end up with Simeon, and Simeon takes him up and blesses him. This is exactly the image that you would see if he was a priest. So, now, we, I think, uh, many of us have read this or been told something about this story, and, and it comes across more like, hey, so there's some guy, you know, he wakes up and he prays, and he gets directed to the temple, right? And he gets there and he sees his, uh, the Messiah, right? And I, I don't know, it's possible, but it could also be, okay, let me, let me clarify I'm talking about that phrase, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, right? And we take that as if it's this, oh, this wonderful spiritual moment, uh, you know, God working in him, bringing him into the temple, and all that. And, and again, it's possible, but it could also simply be, here he is, he's a priest, he's on duty, and he just had the Holy Spirit upon him, kind of like the way it was stated Back in verse 25, where he said he was uh, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It just could have been this guy, Simeon, he just walked around, you know, in the Spirit a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is the third time it's mentioned, 25, 26, and 27, the Spirit is mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm not trying to, you know, poo-poo someone's image of, oh, this guy's having this wonderful spiritual moment. I'm just saying, I don't know. This guy seems to live in the spiritual moment. And so maybe we need to alter our our mental image of how this looks, right? But the 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 important point, at least in terms of getting the picture in your head, this is exactly what was supposed to happen as they presented the firstborn. The priest takes him up in his arms, and he blesses the child. Now, there's the rub. Simeon took him up in his arms, and he blessed God. So that's a little weird, a little different, right? Yeah. But then, just let your mind go. Since this baby, we know because we've read other parts of the Bible, is God, well, in some sense... It's not like that's answering any of the questions that might be in our head, but think of all the things that kind of remain on the table. I mean, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God, and in 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 a sense, that's the same as blessing the baby because he and the father are one, and blah blah blah. I mean, you you can go all kinds of places with that, but we're just saying it's possible Simeon was a priest, mm-hmm. and then then Simeon. Uh, remember how we talked about the oracles? Yep. And we had that one where I'm going, I just don't get it. I don't know why Mm -hmm. this is not included. Well, here's number six of seven. Simeon's now going to speak. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So, uh, as far as oracles go, this is another one that has a name. They call it the Nunc Dimittis, uh, if I pronounce that right. Uh, it, I, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's another poem. And Simeon, uh, he begins by declaring that God has fulfilled his promise. Well, what promise is that, Samuel? That he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah? Yes. Yeah. And then he declares that this child is salvation. And what's really cool about that, okay, let's stop for a second. We call him Jesus, and everybody's okay with that. That's not an issue. But what was his actual name in Hebrew? It was Yeshua. Yes. The word for salvation is Yeshua. So you know they're playing on the words, even right here. For my eyes have seen your Yeshua. That's and his cool. name is Yeshua. 
it's almost like he was naming him. Like it's almost like he was saying his name in in the prayer. Exactly. Yeah, and we don't see that stuff. Even if we were experts in Hebrew and Greek, well, this is in Greek and we still have to get it back into the Hebrew, right? So you've got to make that translation, which I always use the Septuagint for that. That's like a a handy reference that, you know, time has delivered to us, uh, I would say miraculously by God. I think it's an awesome, awesome tool. Mm-hmm. But he declares the child is salvation. That would be the long-awaited salvation of his people, right? And he declares that God has done it openly for all to see. And, and this is the important part. So that, or therefore, this, this uh, child, this salvation, he's going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And, and that's to say that what God has been doing and is doing for all of mankind and even all of creation but it's it's what he's been doing and is doing through Israel will become clear to all the nations and it's supposed to be for Israel's glory and this is one of those issues that i think that the church has just really blown it we've got this all turned around it's we think at least some think that somehow the church is now God's people and that they've taken that over from Israel, you know, the idea of supersessionism or replacement theology, whatever. But they act like Israel doesn't really have a role anymore. And it's, it's, it's not right. It's the Gentiles are being included in what God is working out through Israel. Now, Israel has had their struggles and they are in exile right now. And, and yeah, we could say a lot of things like that, but Israel's not out of the picture. This was, Jesus came as a light for revelation to the Gentiles so they could see and understand their place with God and with his people, Israel. But it's also for Israel's glory. And man, we have not been good about giving them any glory at all. Mm-hmm. And, rem- and remember, it's... Um... This isn't a new concept. I'm going to say it a million times before this podcast is over, but another call back to Genesis. I think it's Genesis 12 when God meets Abraham. What What's his promise from the very beginning of the story? He says, yeah. you, all of your descendants are going to be blessed. So that's Israel. And then he said, all of you know the the other peoples, the nations around you, like by your light will be blessed too. So it's not yeah. like God suddenly decided during New Testament times, oh, you know, it's time to include the Gentiles finally. No, like he's literally affirming what he said at the very beginning. That's right. And that's a really good point and a good way to say it. God has been using his people Israel to save not only them, but all nations from the very beginning. It's not like it just showed up in the New Testament. Good point. Good, good point. Anyway, uh, for what it's worth, um, we'll probably put a bunch of scripture references in the notes for the Nunc Dimittis uh, to show where so much of it comes from uh, previous uh, scriptures in the Old Testament. Okay. So we'll have that in there. Uh, and uh, verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And I mean, let's just be honest, it was pretty marvelous, so why not? <laughs> But they're living it. They are living it. They're there, and they're having some trouble believing it. This is a, it's just pivotal, pivotal moment in human history. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But let's go on. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Wow. A whole lot of stuff in there. Did you feel like uh, uh, turning on a dime? You got a little whiplash there? Yeah, it seemed like 
super exuberant, holding the baby up, everything's great, and then, you know, dun-dun-dun. Yeah. And, I mean, well, we usually just read right over stuff like this, but it starts out with, and Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother. So I think what's important is we separate this into two things. We understand Simeon blessing them. This was the priestly blessing, the priestly benediction. Just like we talked about with Zechariah in the temple and stuff. This is what a priest did at the end of the the redemption in the temple for the for the child, the firstborn. And so here's another indication that Simeon may very well have been a priest. Mm-hmm. But he blesses them and then he says to Mary, and that's when we get into the oracle, number seven of seven. Um, just for interesting fun, because I heard this song the other day and it's in my head and I really like it. Samu, can you read Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26 again? Yeah. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yeah. I just love that. Yeah. But that's that's the priestly benediction. That's what he was saying over then. Okay, so back to reality. Uh, oracle 7 of 7. So, so far, all of these oracles, even the one that I'm saying they skipped, <laughs> they've all been positive and uplifting, etc., right? But this one, not so much. And also notice, who was Simeon talking to? Well, he was talking to Mary and Joseph. No. Oh, just Mary. Oh, that's right. Yep. Weird, right? Yeah. And so he talks about the the fall and the rise of many in Israel, the sign opposed. And so I've got some other scriptures here, uh, Samuel, maybe you can read those. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. And he will become a sanctuary. Okay, stop. That would represent the rise He becomes a sanctuary. That's the rise of many in Israel. Okay. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Yeah, and that would be the fall, the rise and fall of many, right? Mm -hmm. Go on. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, let's look at another one. It's just the first part of Isaiah 49, 22. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll let you know when to stop. Okay. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. Yeah, so stop there. That signal... um. It's, it's like a, a flag or a banner, um, and actually, if, if we could read the Septuagint, I mean, we could, we're not going to, um, you, it's, it's clearer, it's the sign, and raise my sign to the peoples. And so we could see those, those references, good allusions to what exactly what uh, Simeon is saying here. So basically, the idea, if, if we could just bring it down to plain English, that's always better for me. The idea is that people will be divided in response to Jesus' life and ministry, to the Messiah that God has sent. Mm-hmm. That's the, the simple way of understanding that. So finally, Simeon, um, he seems to be alluding, you know, when he talks about the sword piercing her own soul. I, I don't know, but it seems like he's probably talking about Jesus' death and, and its effect on Mary. Um, and uh, maybe. Maybe in the uh, broader sense, we can also just talk about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. They have, and they are, and they will continue to reveal the true measure of men. Their thoughts, words, and actions measured against Messiah reveal, for, for any living person, they reveal whether they are truly for or against God. And if you were to believe some of what Paul writes in the beginning of his letter to the Romans, this doesn't even have to be only people who are, you know, quote unquote, in the church or a part of God's people. This is of all mankind. Jesus' life and death and resurrection and all of that, this, it's, it's the measuring stick. 
And uh, obviously we don't, none of us will measure up. We get that, but we can, we can see the difference between those who are loyal and faithful and those who are not. Mm-hmm. I feel like the air in our virtual podcast room just got a lot heavier hearing that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very convicting to hear that just because of, I don't know, considering, you know, uh, a character, a being that can pierce through all of those walls of protection that you put up in your life, all those insecurities, and can get to the heart of the matter of yourself and see what you're actually for or against. That just, uh, if you don't feel convicted hearing that, I don't know how to help you. Right, right. And that's, it's part of what we talked about even from the intro episode, this idea of saying, Look, if you're going to listen to what we think Scripture is saying, you're going to feel some responsibility in this whole relationship. It's not just, oh yeah, I went to the front or I said the prayer or you know whatever it looks like for some people. I thank goodness I'm in. I get to go to heaven. Hey, no, we're talking about a life that is dedicated to the service of this Lord, this Savior. Mm-hmm. It's not about, uh, am I doing it good enough? It's about, am I faithfully, consistently, intentionally doing it, meaning being faithful to whatever I know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good stuff. And people, I think some people hear that and they feel like pressure or oppression or burden or weight. And, all I can say is, no, somehow you're not quite hearing what's being said because it is actually your freedom and your life that we're talking about. But mm-hmm. maybe if we, if we just keep going, we'll get it. Yeah, and don't feel like, I mean, I don't want to speak for Paul, but at least for me, don't feel like there, we're somehow far above you know, that measuring line <laughs> of being able to handle yeah, that. I mean, yeah. I struggle with it a lot. I mean, I... Man, I take it personally hard when I, I don't feel like I'm measuring up or I don't feel like I'm being faithful in the ways that I need to be. So I don't know. I'm just saying uh, don't beat yourself up because I think it's a universal challenge that we're all facing. So, yeah. And again, it's not about am I doing it good enough? Mm-hmm. It's the faithfulness, the loyalty. Yep. Yeah. Got to train your brain. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, last little bit. Uh, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna. And just, you know, for those who somehow don't think women should be having a role in ministry or whatever. Boom. You're going to see that a lot in the New Testament too. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. (laughs) This is just crazy awesome stuff so so we get this old woman and she's a prophetess no less and now here she is speaking of this long-awaited redeemer except luke doesn't tell us what she says what the heck (laughs) dang it (laughs) yeah it's the worst so anna uh, now, uh, you, you might actually be reminded, since we've already talked about the Hannah and Samuel story, her name uh, should, should remind us of Hannah. That would be her namesake. Uh, and she was fervently praying in the temple. Now, in her case, it was for a child. Uh, this, this Anna, I guess she's been fervently praying for a child, but it was for the, the child Messiah, right? But how interesting. She was married for seven years and her husband dies. And then she's either 84 now, or some people seem to think that she's actually been a widow for 84 years, which is going to make her (laughs) really old. (laughs) And I, you know, it could be either. I don't know. But I'm just going to stick with uh, she was 84. Okay. 
Uh, and, and I guess the point is, if any of you out there figure out the Greek and you know the answer, like, without question, you can let us know. Yeah. But I think uh, enough scholars are arguing about it. We don't have to worry about that. So if you take Luke literally, she lived in the temple. It says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer day and night, night and day. So I have to tell you, you shouldn't take Luke literally. (laughs) Because, I mean, again, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, Luke is using hyperbole because he wants to try to express just how much time she spent in the temple. And I know maybe before and, and maybe now, whatever, you're hearing hyperbole. Can you do that in the Bible? <laughs> yes, you can. Yep. And it's all over the place. And this is, this is, in a sense, it's proven if you just pay attention even to verse 38. First, he says she doesn't depart. She's worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day as if she's living in the temple. But then in verse 38, he says, and... Coming up at that very hour, okay, this doesn't mean that he, she was in the temple and she came up to Mary and Joseph. It's saying she was coming up to the temple at the very hour that Mary and Joseph were already there and going through the priestly stuff. She began to give thanks to God. So, um, we don't know the words that she used. Okay, but her message, it, it was to all of those who, like her, have been waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem uh, or Israel. This baby is that redemption. The long-awaited redemption has come. And that's the end of our story for today. <laughs> that's super cool. I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask, too... Um, I need to brush up on my Torah, but another way to, you know, defend that Luke is using hyperbole, you know, doesn't the specifications of temple service in Leviticus make it clear that those that are staying in the temple have to be, you know, of the tribe of Levi, you know, they need to be born into that priestly line to have that kind of association with the temple. So in some sense, like, you know, it's going against the mitzvot for her to have lived constantly in the temple if she's not of that lineage. Is is there any uh, truth to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think on it's on multiple levels. You could, in one sense, just look at it and say, is it even physically possible that she could not have her own home, her own age? She just literally lived in the temple for, I don't know, however many years that is. 60-some years, 80 years, however you calculate it. Okay, right there, it's like, no, that is not going to happen. It's, it's not even physically possible. And then to your point, well, what about the regulations regarding the temple? Who could go where? Who could do what? And all of those. No, they're going to kick her butt out. Now, I'm saying that, you know, yeah. kind of mean-like. Hyperbole. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm trying to help you. <laughs> But no, th- th- this is, it is impossible on many levels, and we just, we know that that's not what Luke is trying to say. Sometimes it's just not good enough to say, uh, he laughed harder than I've ever seen him laugh, or, or I laughed so hard I thought I would cry. Uh, it's, sometimes you have to say phrases that are so extreme that everyone knows that they are untrue, but they at the same time know that you're just trying to get them to understand that this is beyond anything that you would consider to be normal. Mm-hmm. So you use extreme language to to get across, to communicate the extreme nature of a thing, even though you have escaped the literal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else we need to discuss or bring up before we wrap it up? Nope. I think it's a good stopping point. And uh, honestly, 
I'm not even sure exactly what we hit next, but we'll sure find out when we get there. All right. Uh, before I close, I just wanted to ma- make sure our listeners knew, uh, t- I mean, today of us recording this, this is Friday, October the 9th. If you have been listening to our podcast on our actual website, www.okidokimos.com, we also have recently been approved on Apple Podcasts and the Podbean app, and we're also working towards, you know, Google Podcasts, that kind of thing. But if you have an iOS device, that's an Apple device, and you use the Apple Podcast app, just search Okidokimos. It's the most popular podcast app in the country, super accessible. Anyways, it's also available on the Podbean app as well. Just letting you know that there are multiple different ways that you can listen uh, that can help you, you know, ease into it as um, accessible as possible. That's right. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can also visit us on our website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. Until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Talk to you again soon.